Hello, this is Alex Granado, Senior Reporter for Education NC, and you're listening to Ed Talk. Today we're talking with Dr. Hazem Olwer. He is a doctor at the Heart Institute at East Carolina University. He recently performed a heart surgery on our CEO, Mebin Rash, and uh, he's here talking with us. Dr. Olwer, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Uh, Dr. Olwer, so I'm going to start just by asking you to uh, tell me a little bit about what you do. I'm going to try and summarize this because I, I'm a heart surgeon. I do uh, uh, what we call it cardiac surgery. Uh, I've trained in cardiothoracic surgery in the UK. I came here to do a fellowship with a very famous uh, surgeon in the US, pioneered cardiac surgery uh, on the mitral valve and on uh, as a minimal invasive, which means minimal access cardiac surgery. And his name is Randy Chitwood. So he trained me in 2011. He was the first person to do robotic surgery in the country. He did the FDA trial, and I was um, privileged to be one of his fellows, trained in that, and then subsequently he hired me. Um, and then I moved on to do uh, another fellowship at Duke where I did a heart transplant and mechanical heart support and uh, mechanical support for very sick patients. And so, at the moment, really narrowed my specialty down to do minimum invasive mitral uh, valve surgery uh, and minimal access surgery, minimal access cardiac surgery, and as well uh, doing heart failure surgery. We don't do transplant in Greenville, <coughs> excuse me, North Carolina, but we do all sorts of mechanical support, artificial heart implantation. And so the, the minimally invasive surgery you're talking about, that, that's a robotic surgery, and, and that's what you did with Mebin, is that correct? Correct. Uh, I hope, you know, I know she's in agreement for us to have this interview, so we're not breaching HIPAA, but uh, what we did for uh, Ms. Rash, she's a, she's a great person, and I, uh, I met her really for the first time complaining about not having enough energy and feeling short of breath and their mitral valve was leaking. It's a one-way valve if you imagine that and basically it was it was functional both ways in her case and all the back pressure to the lung making her not feeling as good as before. Um, so what we did is we offered her and, and really she came us you know did all her research and came to us to have robotic surgery and that's why we did repair her valve with a minimal, you know, minimal access uh, using the robot. And, um, you know, th this kind of, pe people, when they think about heart surgery, they think of something much more invasive, you know, opening up a person's chest. But this is much more minimal. And, and tell us about the advantages of that. Well, you know, it's still, and I, I think Miss Rash will recall this. I still explain to her that even it sounds minimal, it's still a, a, an open heart surgery. You still have to stop the heart to perform what you want to perform. You know, the advantage, we do see it. Although when you look at all the studies, uh, you know, after a year, that if you can repair the valve, whether you go through the sternum, which means the front of the chest, or through the side, which is a small incision between the ribs, and that's what we did robotically. Uh, I think on the short-term advantage, and I think she experienced that, is hospital stay is less, 
minimal blood transfusion, recovery is quicker, probably less pain as well, less pain, uh, pain medicine requirements and opiates. And we feel that return to work is quicker because when you have a open heart surgery through the front, you have lots of restrictions, like you have to wait until the bone heals. Well, in her case, she doesn't have to wait for bone healing because we only went between the ribs. We didn't have to break any of the bones or cut any of the bones to wait for it to heal. And we, it's, it's any, you know, it's like having your appendix, your uh, or your hernia repair. We had to obviously have a, an incision on her skin and between the ribs and between the muscles. But on the other hand, is we think that she will have less restriction to go back for driving and go back to work. We're hoping her recovery will be quicker as well. Now, it is still open heart surgery by all definition, and it's still invasive. But we're trying to make it as 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 you know as as least painful and, and quicker recovery as we can. And I hope we have achieved that in her uh, situation. We do have many patients now. They do their research and talk to other patients. I think one of the most important thing is. You know, uh, when patients come and already decided for robotic surgery, not everybody is suitable for that. And they have to go through lots of screening because you don't as well want to compromise their safety just for the sake of having a small incision. And uh, Mebin said that uh, you've done many of these surgeries. She mentioned that maybe you've done over 600. How many of these have you done? <laughs> I, do, I, I really don't have the count. I have done a lot because when I came to train with Dr. Chitwood, I had the privileges to uh, uh, to to do you know lots of surgery with him. So if I to count this, and if I to count uh, when I started you know solo, but I didn't have the big practice. What I did, I aligned myself with him, and I did all his cases. So you know, I. Uh, I was in charge of training his fellows when he hired me. And uh, if I took out this in my cases, I, I really can't tell you how much. Is it 600? Is it less? Uh, but I, I can tell you I have done enough to be confident and reliable performing this surgery. And I can tell you our center is one of the really best in the country to perf perform this. From the, It's not just about me, to be honest with you, uh, with this operation, because... You know, the setup, you have, it's, it's like flying a plane. You know, all, yes, there is a pilot, but there's the crew, there's the anesthesiologist, there's the, the scrub nurse, there's your bed. One of the most important members in this operation is the one, um, the, uh, is the bedside surgeon. Because remember, there's two surgeons or a surgeon and an assistant. One is at the bedside because the robot is, it's only just a, an expensive pair of, scissor extension to your hand so yes i am sitting at the console and perform, performing this operation and might sound high tech but you still rely on a team to get the patient through this and i can tell you that i think the more appropriate question is how many surgery your team have done and i can tell you the team I'm, i am working with is all the all the product of what Dr. Chitwood has set up his program, and after he retired, I took over, uh, and myself and, and my partners, um, you know, we're so privileged to work with this team who performed more than a thousand cases, whether it's with me 
or with Dr. Chitwood. And uh, t- tell me about Dr. Chitwood. I-, I hear Dr. Chitwood is somewhat of a legend in this field. Oh, absolutely, no doubt. Because remember, when you're the first one to do this, perform mitral valve repair through robotically, you're the second in the world after, I think, Leipzig in Germany, um, which is funny. They've started this, they did the first robotic case, and then they stopped. Um, Dr. Chitwood carried on, did the feasibility trial, and did the and did the trial uh, in, for the FDA to approve it in the country. Um, and I can tell you one thing. I mean, that's that speak it, it, it itself because uh, to itself because uh, or self-explanatory because he is the one who brought it to this country. Now, I don't think I don't think there's any medical big uh, cardiac century, uh, cent- center practice in the country doesn't have now performed robotic surgery. Uh, now. Um, as well, mitral valve itself is the arm. And, and I think if we really need to talk about the real thing we do is, you know, if you look at the, the, the USA study, that how many surgeons among, I don't know how many surgeons in the US perform heart surgery at the moment. I thought it's around 5,000, but I might be wrong. Uh, but... Um, they did a study and say who does mitral repair, and they were less than 5% of them. And, and then on the other hand, they looked at surgeons who did, they do mitral repair, and they found as like the average in the country is around five valves per year. That's not enough to give you uh, enough confidence to, uh, to repair a valve because it's one of the most demanding um, surgery it's not really performing the surgery is having the patient to understand why is the valve is leaking how are you going to repair it uh, how are you going to save a young patient uh, on valve and avoid being on blood thinner and avoid being on a having a pig valve or a mechanical valve a tissue valve or a mechanical valve and um, and that's a disease in itself so you don't want to take somebody's disease and give them another disease by replacing the valve and so one of the things I told Miss Rash when she came to me, I said, you don't want to be happy just about robotic surgery. I think your first question will be when you ask me is, can you repair my valve? Before you ask me, how am I going to do it? And I think I've opened her eyes into it. And I said, look, I don't want to advertise myself or anybody. I can send you anywhere you want to be close to you. You know, I know you came from Raleigh. But I just want to tell you, as I advise any of my patients, I don't want you to go anywhere unless you're confident they can repair your valve. And that's that's what you're aimed to. Whether they do it through the chest, whether they do it through minimal invasive, that's your first goal. Your second goal will be is then if they can do it robotically. I think if you are a family member, that's what I would advise you to do, but I'm biased. Um, and then uh, you have your choice, and she's chosen, which we appreciate as well, to stay with us. Uh, and I hope she's happy with what we've achieved. Tell us about this procedure, TAVR. It's spelled T-A-V-R. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a different technology I used to do. But I, as I said to you, at some point you have to narrow your practice because you don't want to be stretched too much and then you become average at what you do rather than, um, you know, concentrate and, and become, you know, 
I always follow the guidelines that if you have to be a good pilot, you have to do 10,000 hours of flying. And this is what I've decided to do with my practice is you know, try to concentrate on what I like and what am I good at and how am I going to get better. And Taber is something I started uh, with the team here. It wasn't really me started, but I started with them. Uh, Dr. Anderson, Dr. Gibson brought this and under the guidance of Dr. Chitwood. And this is a technology, basically, if you know what I'm talking about, in, in people having heart attack and having a stent, they talk about stent. And this is really a valve on a stent where you don't have to open the chest and you go through the groin like you're having a normal cardiac cath and they put it inside your aortic valve and open it up and, uh, and then just uh, push your old valve away. Now, at the moment, this is FDA approved for moderate and high-risk patients. We're still doing open aortic valve replacement. But I think this technology evolved in the last five years so much that in the future, it's probably going to replace uh, open surgical aortic valve. Now, um, you can call it minimal invasive aortic valve replacement. You can call it TAVR, which means transvenous aortic valve surgery uh, replacement. And that's what TAVR stands for. Uh, but, <clears throat> I, I, you know, medicine is evolving so much and it's on a, on a scary, scary when you look at the rate. Um, at the moment, we're privileged that we know that how to uh, open heart, do open heart surgery. But I think in 20 years, looking at the trainee at the moment, you'll be very hard, hard to see somebody has been exposed to the amount of open surgery we've exposed ourselves. Uh, and I mentioned when we started that you work at the Heart Institute at ECU. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yes, so we're in eastern North Carolina. And if you look at us, east of the I-95, really it's us. We cover around maybe 1.5 to 2 million people from here, East 95, into the beach. And it's rural medicine, Alex. It's... Uh, People are very poor. Um, we really, our uh, pay mix uh, is not very good because most people are self-pay, don't have insurance. And we, uh, we, but I'll tell you, the feeling is very good because the population here is under underserved and, and really, um, really, I would, I wouldn't say poor, but they're not as privileged as when you go to Raleigh and, and Norfolk and, and big cities. So we really, the, the morale is very good in the Eastern East Carolina Heart Institute because of the service we give to our population. Now, um, we probably, apart from transplant, we are as, as competitive, as close in our, uh, the standard of care the service we provide uh, you know, to Duke and UNC Chapel Hill, these are our closest hospital. Uh, we get all the sick and, and, and difficult patients from other, uh, other like uh, small heart centers like Newburn, uh, Jacksonville. Uh, these are performed ordinary and day-to-day -day heart surgery, and we get their difficult cases, the patient difficult to win or their cardiopulmonary bypass and need more support. So we are a very tertiary big tertiary center 
for very underserved areas. I know you're originally from Syria and um, that you studied in Britain. Could you tell me a little bit about your journey to get to where you are now and uh, what kind of schooling it took? So, you know, born to a very hardworking family, we were living in the UK in Northern Ireland. Um, both my parents from Syria. I didn't know my dad. He died when I was one. He did his PhD in chemistry. And when he died, my wife, my mom gave birth to my sister. And so, and she was a housewife and she went back to Syria. So we were born in Northern Ireland in part of the UK. We went back to Syria, finished my basic education. My mom re got, she got her teaching uh, certificate and she started working really hard. Uh, she remarried my stepdad, who was a great guy, uh, who was a farmer. So we had some farming exposure, and we had horses. My mom, uh, my mom finished her teaching degree, become a head teacher, and then she was a head of education in the city of Homs, which is in the middle of the Syria. And then when I finished my medicine, um, I. Uh, you know, I was in 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 really uh, confused at that stage. You know, I was like, this guy who finishes his college but wants to do veterinary, and my mom talked me out of it. Uh, and so I got into medicine, and then in medicine I decided, and that was in Damascus University, was one of the oldest universities in the world. Um, and then I went to the UK after I finished because... You know, I was a British citizen, and I, I was very easy to travel. I got uh, accepted to one of London universities, one of the, you know, one of the biggest London universities called St. George's Medical School. And I did my final year medical school there. So I become a British graduate, and I started really climbing the ladder there. During medical school, I decided I wanted to do heart surgery. I just loved it. I loved the heart. But... I wanted to be a surgeon. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to operate. Um, and so I started my training. And you can imagine, my English wasn't very good. I started working on that. And I remember the, the first job I had, they said, like, the physician there, his name was Mr. Sales. Um, he will say, as the surgeons, they call Mr. in England. He's like, well, I don't think we need to teach you medicine because we're happy with your level, but your English is so bad, we need to work on that. And uh, and then I really did very well in my training. I just had glowing references. The general surgery offered the job, and I decided to carry on with cardiac surgery. And then I did heart surgery. And during that, I start going to Syria every year. That was 2008, 2009, 2010, to do charity operation with a team of England. They were led by a surgeon called Mr. Perry and Mr. Caputo. They were just, they were great guys with big hearts. I mean, I've never worked with, with, with such, such gentlemen. And they, we constructed, three of us, a team of 10, 15 people, and I'll tell you, we used to take them to Syria and uh, from their own private holidays to operate on kids with heart disease. And we did great. I mean, it was like one of the best things I've ever done. It's just, this is why Ms. Rash reminded me with the charity work she does. And so I ended up deciding, me and my wife said, that's it. 
we are going back to Syria to help uh, these people who are really underserved. We, we looked at the West, we looked at the UK, we looked at the USA, and we said how they are privileged to have the amount of surgeons, the amount of resources. And we really felt bad for an underserved country not to have enough people. And my aim was there not to make money. I mean, there was a good, a good chance to become wealthy there if you go into private medicine. But I really wanted to train people how to do heart surgery. And I thought the best thing is to improve myself first. So I lined myself to come to the U.S. Uh, to do two fellowships. And... Um, uh, one is in, in mitral valve robotic surgery, and one in uh, uh, that's in Greenville, North Carolina, with the greatest guy, Dr. Chidwell. And then one with Dr. Safi, he's an Iraqi surgeon doing aortic surgery in Texas, in Houston. And he's a big name in, uh, in, in heart surgery, but in aortic surgery. And I, I accepted in both places. And then, unfortunately, 2011, the war started. And so when the war started, my mom left to the UK to live with my other siblings. Uh, my sisters left because it would become unsafe. My stepdad died. And it became a disaster. We lost all the land. Uh, and it became, you know, war is ugly. And we didn't want to be part of anything because whoever is killing what, they're still Syrian people. And then you start having, you know, extremists, uh, you know, uh, it become it become just un intolerable and ugly. We lost all the doctors used to help us in our charity work, fled. Uh, everybody we knew either died or fled. And, and really, my wife said, now we have three kids. She said, enough traveling. She said, choose between the UK or the US. And I said, look, we, I'm just sick and tired of traveling again. And so now we were very lucky that, you know, we were offered to stay in there. I remember Chitwood coming to me in, in around September in 2011. And he's saying that, can you stay after your fellowship? And I said, no, the war is going to end soon. And then he came back by January or February 2012. And he said, this is your last chance. And I talked to my mom, talked to my wife, talked to the kids. And then we said, that's it. There's no going back. So here we are now in Greenville, North Carolina, seven years ago. Seven years ago, we were here, or six years ago. And uh, the war has not stopped. Um, so that's the journey, really. So now I'm, you know, did my basic education in Syria, did my medical school, part of it in Syria, final year in the UK, did most my training as a resident, intern, and fellow in England. Did two fellowships here in Duke uh, and in Greenville, North Carolina. And I, uh, I'm proud of what I've achieved and what am I doing. And I'm proud of, I'm proud as well. And I'm very grateful to the country who gave us a base. And we really feel part of it. You know, now we have green cards and we are um, really part of the system. We're part of, you know, part of this country. That's what we feel, and I hope the country feels the same about us. And um, you've talked to me a little bit about your schooling and how you got here. Um, what do you think students who are interested in these careers should know? Well, <laughs> so the first thing, whenever I have a resident who wants to do cardiac surgery, I tell them, 
I try not to put off anybody because listen, when you have determination and you want to do anything, there's no way you cannot do it. Not not a single human being. When you're focused and you you know what to do, and that's why I tell my kids. Now I can tell you, I start with my kids. They don't want to do heart surgery or medicine. They're being put off with the amount of hours I do. Uh, but for people who come to me and say, "Hey, we want to." be trained in cardiac surgery and at the moment we have two fellows we're training and we think about the third one I tell them that it's it's exciting helping people is very good it's a charge your batteries it's good for the moral but it's a long journey I had this discussion yesterday with my female fellow and she was asking me about I want to do this and I want to do that and I said yes that's very exciting but I talked to her about her family, her husband, and she wants to start a family as well. And I said, the most successful people in the world, the people who can balance what they want. And so you really have to learn how to balance, how to be. Uh, and I gave an example of one of my bosses in England. I remember him, Mr. Hutter. Uh, he would say to me, you have to remember there's life outside the front door of this hospital. And he used to tell me, you have to remember that nobody cares whether you're a heart surgeon or a nurse or a or an inter internist as soon as you leave the hospital. So don't let it get into your brain. Otherwise, you'll be just living in the hospital. But it's long hours. It's hard work. It's stressful. You know, when you're doing an emergency at night and things are not going well and it's two o'clock in the morning and you're coming out to tell the family the patient is not doing well and then you go home and say i'm not going to do this anymore i'm going to quit but then you wake up in the morning and then you say okay i'm going to go to work and you start a new day it is hard it's with any it's any like any job it has positive and negative it's great if i go back i will still do what i'm doing uh, but then on the other hand is I tell people who wants to do it and students wants to do it you have to be you have really to understand uh, what you're getting yourself into you know being in eastern North Carolina uh, with an often underserved population why do you think high quality medical care is so important to eastern North Carolina because uh, human beings are equal whether they are in Africa or Australia or you know Alaska or North Carolina, and everybody should be entire. I think that's that's the basic of human uh, human beings' uh, rights is to have access to good medical care. Because I want the same medical care I provide, and so I don't think they should be uh, they should uh, have uh, they should you know they should the standard should be less because we are in a poor area. I don't think that's right, and I don't think uh, I don't think that's that's uh, you know just. Doctor Aware, I appreciate you talking with me. Hey man, thank you, Alex. I really appreciate your uh, appreciate the time as well, and I hope I hope this is beneficial. And anytime, if you if I can be of any help, uh, just let me know. We've been talking with Doctor Halsam Aware. He is a doctor at the Heart Institute at East Carolina University. And my name is Alex Granados, Senior Reporter for Education NC, and you've been listening to Ed Talk. Thanks for listening.